the other kind of radio. radio. The other kind of radio. radio. The other kind of radio. From the studios in Omaha, Nebraska. The other kind of radio. It's time for the other kind of radio, everybody. Welcome. Good morning. The other kind of it's Sunday, June the other third. Kind of Took me a second to remember. It's early in the morning. It's like six thirty in the morning. Okay, so it's nine nineteen, and. Uh, we're ready to do another show for you. We've got uh, got a couple things to to talk about today. Um, we've got an update on our fantasy movie league. We're also going to get Todd's take on something and Jeff's judgment on cold showers, not the kind that you're thinking of, but uh, judgment on cold showers. Uh, maybe maybe. Uh, wade through a little uh, little sports update. We got some major sports happenings right now, and don't want to leave those people out. So we'll we'll talk a little sports, and then we'll get into uh, our main show, which is going to be Todd and I breaking down the top 100 uh, AFI films. This is the 10th anniversary edition. We're going to do this at 25 movies at a time, and today we're going to start out by going um, from number 100 to uh 76 and we're gonna not get into too much detail as far as each uh film we're gonna kind of discuss them um kind of openly so we're not here for six hours and invite of course uh the kind listeners to uh give us any feedback or if there's something they want a particular film they want to talk about make sure they uh reach out to us and we can obviously go back and discuss some more to get a hold of us is very, very easy. Um, info at the other kind radio, Jeff at the other kind radio, or Todd at the other kind radio, all dot com. So um, I'm excited about the show. I'm excited about getting the AFI. It's something that Todd and I have talked about quite a bit. And um, uh, it'll be interesting to see what knowledge I learn, what, what knowledge I gain, and uh, how much I expose my ignorance, which is, which is always fun, right? Uh, I'm getting the red light. That means Todd's makeup is done. He's looking fresh. He's looking handsome. Let's see if we can go ahead and get him uh, tuned in here. Let's see. I've got to just turn this knob a little bit. I want to get this kind of worked out so it's easier. Yep. Okay. I think he's there. Todd? Todd, come in, Todd. (sighs) <laughs> it's always such a production coming out of makeup. <laughs> I, I, I want to get it easier too, because you know I like to look pretty, but I like to be efficient. So we do need to work that. We process do, we out. do. And I've got to get some different kind of technology in the studio here that doesn't sound like we've taken some equipment from the 1950s. And uh... oh no, no, no! I like the equipment. The equipment's <laughs> very cool. Just that you know, there's something about the antiquated approach to makeup. Can I just? Can I wear a bag over my head? Would that be okay? It might be a little muffled, um, okay. but right. but yeah, we can. If we if you are, then it needs to be a plastic one. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we're going to start out this episode, folks, with me encouraging my co-host to uh, put himself in a dangerous situation. Please don't do that, kids at home. Don't do that. Understood. 
How you doing, how Todd? I'm going to take good. a drink. How are you good? Hey, how I'm are gonna, you today, Jeff? I'm going to take a drink of coffee. So tell me how you are doing. <laughs> you know, it's been a crazy week. Um, trying to be prepared for this stinking list, which I'm so excited to cover something like this because it's a great challenge. And to remind the listener, this comes about because Jeff loves to pick at me about the things he knows I love. And one of those, he knows that I actually do love the film Citizen Kane. And that's where this all came from, is he always tells me it's overrated. And I tried to simply say, and we're going to get into some of this, that look, this is a list derived from an institution that is their, one of their sole jobs is to create the, the catalog, the, the discussion about the best achievements in film. And they, that's how they treat every year. Uh, you have the Academy who picks a winner, the, the, AFI, though, comes out with a list every year of achievements in filmmaking. They don't necessarily, they, they'd usually choose 10 films, but if there was an 11th, I'm sure they would have no problem saying, you know what, this one deserves discussion too. Everything about them is these did things to actually, they either touch the pop culture that guy so much that we have to mention it or it advanced the, the filmmaking so much. I am so thrilled to do this with Jeff simply because, you know, as much as he picks on me and does all these things, he's also a great student of this and he, you know, he comes to me and wants to learn those things. So I, I can't wait to go through this with you. You realize, thank you for that. You realize the easiest way to shut me down is go, Oh, you don't think Citizen Kane should be the number one film. What film do you think should be? And I'd go, uh, mm, cause I was just thinking that I have no idea what if you say good fellows you know no, I, no, i'll both keep no. you, and you yeah exactly I, but that's i mean i'm being honest i really don't have an idea as far as what kind of movie should be in there but before we get into all of that because that's going to be a really good discussion to have it's important to stay warm and flexible and that's just i don't mean like temperature warm i mean muscle warm and i don't know where you're going with this well go <laughs> I, I i i i furthered my knowledge in another area um, this week, uh, here in Omaha, I have uh, some good friends, Jay and, uh, Angie, and they've been friends for quite a while and they have, uh, decided to open a new business here in the Omaha Metroplex. And I have to be honest, I did not know a lot about, uh, Pilates. I thought maybe it was a latte with some pills in it. I, I, uh, probably spent a little more time than that on trying to come up with something funny to say, but, um, I went down, I got invited down, uh, Friday, uh, to take a tour of the studio. And I thought Pilates was kind of, kind of like, uh, just a mat and a person. And then, you know, some breathing and stretching and everybody said, Oh, you mean yoga? I'm like, yeah, but this place is amazing. It's called Club Pilates West Omaha. And each section, so when you go and you take a class there, you get your own. And it looks like, it either looks like some type of medieval torture device or uh, uh, or some kind of sex toy. And it has every type of spring, bendy, pulley, ball, rounded, pushy, pulley kind of contraption on this thing have you have you ever been into a pilates club i know yeah. that no without question no i've not i actually didn't need to ask you that's pretty evident you haven't been but for those of us that have I... <laughs> 
it is super super cool so i i wanted to do something nice for for uh for jay and and angie and club pilates west omaha and just give a little little shout out we know we have a lot of listeners here in the omaha area they are located at 15805 west maple road um suite 105 that's here in omaha and their phone number if you want to give them a call they have a deal running right now and you know to the kind listener you can thank me later uh, I had this worked out. Uh, if you call and and set up an appointment, they will do a free 30-minute class. And all of what I just said is pretty much not true, other than you can get a free 30-minute class. That's been in, in place for a long time. I was just trying to make myself look extra special there. Club, Club Pilates, West Omaha. Go in, tell Jay... And tell Angie that you heard about it on the other kind radio. They may give you a hug. They may, they may ask you to leave. I don't know. No, they want you there. 30-minute class free introduction. You get to see what all the pulley, pushy, healthy. The place looks healthy. You walk in there and it's just like, you know, I felt healthy. I didn't even do anything. And I walked out of there and I was like, yeah, it was a good workout. So uh, if you really go there and listen to people that are, are very uh, professionally trained and serious about Pilates, they'll take good care of you. Um, they've got a, I think there's a water system there, uh, Jay was telling me about. It's like this super water that's above all other water that uh, I asked to, to try and sample, and he said no. But, uh, uh, but uh, I'm sure if you go there and do the 30-minute class, and they'll let you have some water, which is good. What, uh, what is super water? I don't know. He said it's like this super filtrated, like on the back end, you know, it was this really expensive thing to put into the 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 club. And uh, I was like, well, can I have some? He's like, no, you're not in the club. So, so it's like exercise holy water. Yeah. I mean, you know, but even those that are, you know, agnostic or, or don't believe in religion, I'm sure it'll do wonders for them as well. I was about um, to say, I don't think I want to drink that. It might burn my image. <laughs> He's, you know, he's going to call me or he's going to text me and say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Don't need you talking about my <laughs> my business and, and holy water on the other kind radio. All kidding aside, folks, Club Pilates, West Omaha, uh, 15805 West Maple Roads, right down the street. Uh, you know, in Omaha, everything's 15 minutes away. Talk to Jay. Talk to Angie. Go in there. Check it out. They've got shirts for sale. I almost bought a Pilates shirt. Um, but they also said, no, we don't want you representing us with that on. So, um, but, uh, get, get some clothes and, and seriously, they've, this is a top notch type of thing. I mean, it, it really is, um, amazing all the different equipment they have in there. Uh, Jay was telling me about real quick. Jay was telling me about, a a young woman that came in there. That's a power lifter who has back problems. And Jay and I, when he was telling me a story, I'm like, yeah, the problem is you're lifting stuff that's so heavy. Um, anyway, she went in there and, and, you know, did the, did the free class and said that her back felt a lot better. So, um, again, Club Pilates, West Omaha, go check it out. I'll, uh, I'm sure I won't be asked to mention them again, <laughs> but, uh, congratulations to Jay and Angie on opening that business. And I hope it's super successful for you. So, uh, uh, enough with the Pilates talk there. I think we're now really to a point where, where everybody wants to be. And uh, let's get the projector going. There we go. And uh, let's get Todd's take on. Todd, what's your take on this week? So, I had a take on something else, but Jeff implored me to actually be honest about what has consumed my time this week. And <gasps> Yay! As, has been mentioned before. I, I wrote a book called The Risen that is a 
kind of a dystopian type story about a, a future war called the Lifetimes War that consumes these people. And, oh, and man, it, it drives I, everything. So I thought it was about I, bread makers. <laughs> I read the wrong book. I need to go. Oh, really? man. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I've, I've been knee deep in writing the sequel to that. I'd already written a short story that sort of tells the backstory of one character that's introduced in there and and to me was necessary for the next book it's it's something that if you go to the the website lifetimeswar.com and you register for the readers list you can get for free um that came easily i'm writing the the sequel that is called the forgotten few and it hasn't come so easily it's been one of the most trying type things i've ever done because i've never written a sequel before I, I've done attempts at screenwriting. I've done attempts at, you know, at novels, et cetera, short stories, never a sequel. And something about finding the inspiration to continue characters is not really been a rewarding experience for me, but I, I don't do things and stop them. So I'd written 208 pages and found myself just almost hating the moments when I sat down to write. So what I decided to do and what has consumed me over the past probably about week, week and a half is I printed off those 208 pages and decided to read it. Now, one of the great things if, if you ever do writing is they, they tell you, don't do this. Oh, really? Because, oh, no, this is a no, no. You are to finish writing and just do it. Because what will happen inevitably is you go back into it and you start going, oh, I need to rewrite that. Oh, I need to rewrite that. And if you get consumed in a rewrite before you finish, you'll never finish. Uh, However, what I decided was I've done this enough. I've done the, the right rewrite stuff enough that I'm going to discipline myself. And outside of while I'm re reading it and outside of, you know, egregious mistakes, something like oh, that X that out. I am not looking at character inconsistencies because you're going to do that. The first time you write something, a character will say something that by the time you're at page 200, you haven't seen something else and you have to fix that. So it works. I'm not allowing myself any of that. What I've been doing is trying to read it. And get my mind back into not only where the characters were in the first book, but to understand where they need to go, just to get them in my head speaking the right way. And it, you know, it's it's. I, I tell my wife it's an illuminating experience in that you you look at how frail you can be as a creative person, and you look at the mistakes and how really writing songs, novels, movies, whatever it may be, is really an illusion because what we end up seeing is if it's successful, we end up seeing a very polished effort. Right. But we often realize that books and all this take and songs take months and years of crafting before we ever read them. And you, you think about uh, one of my favorite writers, John Irving, who wrote The World According to Garp, said, I'm an okay writer. I'm an excellent rewriter. Ah. And... I keep that inside my head all the time of you don't have to be perfect. Just get it out there and then start working to fix it. Now, obviously you want to make it great by the end, but the whole point of this being it, it's allowing me to look at storytelling in, a, in an interesting way in that it has to have a drive to it. It has to have a push. So I lost that drive and push for whatever reason, whether I let work or, you know, fatherdom get in the way and that, that happens. Uh, until this can become a profession, this may be what I have to do from time to time. So it, it's it's been a fun and a trying experience. But that's kind of my take on is creating some art and understanding that occasionally you have to go back and find your own reasons for doing it. It is such a 
tangle web you can weave and and circle of infinity that you can get i just made that up circle of infinity that's like also it. it's also my latest band name um <laughs> the, whirlpool i guess is a better better word that you can pull yourself into because i tell you i tell you what um it, it's the same way even for this show and i know this is a, 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 a nowhere as difficult as putting a, a book together and i can completely see um where where you're going with that and the two things i wanted to point out was one every time i do the show i'll be talking to my dad and be talking to pop or something like that and i say you know we got the new show done it's out and he goes hey how do you feel and i tell you what after every show i feel absolutely horrible i feel elated and glad that we got it done but in my mind, it's always I'm always focusing or thinking about the 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 cue that I missed or or maybe some rambling that that I had that necessarily wasn't you know needed. Uh, so it is interesting to have that 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 kind of um, uh, insecurity and then then just wondering you know what what the hell am I doing? <laughs> but then you know you thanks to you and your encouragement, we put it out there and we get we get great feedback and people like the show. So that that's nice. Uh, to hear, but the other thing is, I think you're hitting on something. When it came um, time when I was doing comedy, was to write jokes, sit down and write a joke, right? So you write a joke, and mm-hmm. then you rewrite the joke, and then then you start questioning your rewrite. And why did you? Why you know? Did you really need to change that? Oh my lord, I can't imagine. And especially, um, and my question to you, and where I'm kind of meandering through this, is. Obviously, you wrote the first book. How long did it take for you to write the first book? The and I'm sorry about that lip smack there. I just all of a sudden blew my own eardrums out as I went. <laughs> um, the The first book took about a year and a half. Okay. The first the first draft of it came very easily, and and I do something that to a lot of writers, especially of novels, they they don't like, and that's that I. I build an outline of everything I write. That comes from studying uh-huh. screenwriting, where to me, if you don't understand, you, you only have approximately 120 pages, 120 minutes. You only have that amount of time, and you better understand where it's going, what it's doing. Right. It's not like a novel. You know, Again, John Irving goes, in, and he writes it, and he, he very much just explores. He goes there. Um, I, I, I would love to write a novel at some point where I just allow myself to go. I okay. don't know that I'll ever have the security of that. But right. by having that outline on that first book, I, I think that the original, the first draft of it was done in six months. Okay. And, and, so, and, it, and it was shorter. It was always intended because it was my first foray into a book. It was right. always intended to be a shorter book than what this one will be. So how long have you been working on this one? Ooh, a year. Yeah. Okay, so then my next question for you is, do you think part of the process in writing the sequel being harder is that you, do you analyze, overanalyze or, or question what, you know, where you're taking a character or a particular event? I mean, obviously, when you're, when you're laying down a, a fresh new uh, paint, if you will, a, a, new, a first book, nobody has, nobody has opinions or, or expectations on any of the characters because the first book's the discovery, right? Where you find out who's, who's good and who's bad. And I need to finish reading it as well. Uh, um, but I guess in the second book, are, are you, do you find it more difficult to, to write characters and stuff? Cause you had now have to stay within those guidelines. Well, so as you know, the, the first book was very much, I think I've said it before. A friend came to me and said, I have this kind of an idea. What do you think? And we pulled one little element out and we did it. And as we did it, I began to see, Ooh, if you kind of peppered this in, you could explore that later. So I tried to put little bitty hints at where it might go. 
So I knew things that I wanted to explore in book two. And by the time I finished book one, especially, you know, with subsequent rewrites, I think we did three or four rewrites of it. And that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean you're rewriting the whole thing. You're going right. to keep large portions of it, but you're going to fix it. You're going to change, it. you're going to change character motivations. And as I did that, I pretty much knew hmm, I want these characters to explore this. And so I, you know, for me, Jeff, it, it really, the slog of it has become that I allowed myself to lose the moment of the story. And what I mean by mm. that, and I think that that's anything when you're creating this stuff, you have to understand where the characters are at that moment. You have to understand as a writer, their hopes, their desires, their frailties. You have to understand everything so that if it comes along, it often, you know, a character often ex exposes more about themselves when they're reacting to other things right. than when they're acting upon it. Right. Luke Skywalker is infinitely more interesting in the moments when his uncle has told him, no, you can't go to the Academy. And Luke goes out to look at the sunset, which, you know, is an iconic moment in that film. I'm sorry. Exactly. I'm to give you a sound effect. We, we, we all remember that, but it's because the uncle has showed us where Luke isn't right. Now we get, we love the heroic moment because it's fun and we see Luke achieving it. So I think for me, you know, as I go back and reread this, and a prime example is uh, I'm, I'm introducing, quote, unquote, a, a love interest, but it's not a love interest. It's simply oh the boy. main character has a female companion and there is going to be love involved in it. And, and I tried, in my opinion, to evoke things. I, I love the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indy and Marion are on the boat and she's tending to his wounds. I think it's a beautifully constructed mm -hmm. love scene. Mm hmm. I tried to invoke those things. And as I'm reading past that moment, when I tried to invoke it, I don't carry what happened to those characters enough. And so to me, the hardest thing has been simply to fall in love with these characters again. Ah. It's you're having to stay with them. And then what I've loved about creating things up to now is I create characters, I create things and or a song or whatever it is. And there it is. Right. It's how do you how do you create that character and stay with it right. and and show the passion you did the first time? Yeah, you've created them, and that that's one battle. But then to to give them um, life and and longevity is a is a is a different challenge, and that that's really interesting. Um, uh, in the interest of uh, getting on with our our because uh, I could talk talk about this with you for a long time, but we'll. Uh, We'll we'll put a bookmark in it <laughs> and um, come back. But but hey, when you get down, just think of all the kind listeners and me, and and we're all behind you, and we're, we'll uh, we're sending you uh, um, you know good energy. If we'll send you some good energy, and uh, hope that you can get through what you're working through, because because that's amazing. And 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 I think the reason why I encourage you to to do this on your Todd takes on is that, you know we're all used to hearing from those famous writers that wrote. Harry Potter and you know of course there's Stephen King and other people and it's 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 a it's a different view into their working process when they've sold eight billion copies and have movies and everything else so take it's an interesting interview and 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 information for me to talk to somebody that's just at that beginning stage and, and trying to continue it so and I appreciate you letting me talk about it I, you know and I agree I don't want to spend the entire episode talking about this but if anything, when you mentioned, go ahead and say that, I thought, well, this might be interesting from the standpoint sure. of how often we talk about how these things work. Yeah. And 
and I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. No, no. And and for those for those, let's just do a little rewind call back here. For those kind listeners that they're like, what in the heck are they talking about? And it's not like they're everybody's from Louisiana. Um what's the book? Where can people get it? Give me the deets. The the book is called The Risen, uh, volume one of the Lifetime's War is the full title, but you can simply go to Amazon and put in the Risen uh and put my last name Hartzell H-A-R-T-S-E-L-L, and it will come up. I mean, we, we've done decent business. We've sold some copies, uh, just as with a podcast, getting people to review it and rate it is, yes. is a little bit more arduous of a task. But, oh, my Lord. Uh, you know, we're doing okay with it. And Good. the whole point being that once, supposedly in this publishing world, once you get a number of books out, it begins to snowball effect. So that's, I feel the pressure of that too. But, you know, go out and read it. And, and if, you, if you don't want to spend 99 cents on it, let me know, and I will actually give you a free copy. Whoa, free copy from the other kind. Either that, or you can call me, and I'll just kind of tell you briefly what it's about. I, I thought maybe you might read it to him on the phone. Chapter <laughs> one. Chapter one. Um, yeah, but the thing is, if they call me, I'll just give them a brief summary, but I haven't finished it yet, so who knows what it's about. Like I said, I thought it was about Baker, so I really do need to read it because this is this is not good. Okay, um, on to other things. Yes, yes, let's go ahead and uh, get that projector wound down. There we go. A particular kind listener loved the fact that we said that that was you speed reading through a book. So uh, we'll continue right. to have that uh, production value there. Uh, this is going to be much shorter, but Jeff Judgment today, Jeff Judgment is on the cold shower. Now, hold on. <laughs> Hold one. Uh, we all know about the cold shower you're supposed to take when maybe things get a little round up and um, you know you're you're trying to uh, wind back down. But I've been reading some articles and um, decided to give it a try. Now this isn't a cold cold shower in the morning. This is more of a lukewarm shower. It's definitely not you know it's not ice cold, but it's not it's not warm. Um, and of course, you know, you read the articles and there's all kind of, you know, it helps with metabolism and wakes you up and, you know, helps the digestive, all this stuff that I don't know if it's true or not. But what I found is when I'm on the road traveling and Jeff has to get, uh, dressed up in his, in his, in his professional outfit, um, I just would always find that, especially in the, in the. Uh, small hotel rooms, it would get so warm and humid that I would, you know, be trying to get dressed and would be, you know, sweating while I'm trying to get ready for the day. So uh, I decided to give it a try. And uh, it's something that has stuck with me and uh, encourage uh, the other kind of listeners to give it a shot. Again, not ice cold, lukewarm. Um, and it does. I took one this morning, uh, before the show, before the show. And, um, I have to say it's, it's now, um, gotten to the point where if the water's too hot, uh, it, it bothers me. So I've got to turn down so it's nice and cool. Uh, have you ever taken any steps into this? Am I just ludicrous? Have you heard about this, Todd? <laughs> I've, I've not heard about it. I, I find it immediately interesting because I living in Texas, especially I, ah. I just frankly sweat so easily that even going in a hot shower, I step out and my wife will be like, you're, you're miserable, aren't you? Because I step out and I'm sweating. Right. Um, however, there's something that sounds incredibly painful about this whole experience. <laughs> 
Well, I encourage the, the kind listener to give it a shot. And, of course, if you have any feedback, let us know. But, I mean, it's it's a slow week. I really didn't want to talk about video games. There There isn't really anything that's new out there. Besides God of War, right? Besides God of War, yeah. If I brought up God of War again, that, that somebody's head would explode. Um, and nothing really on movies. I was thinking about maybe talking about Arrested Development, but it's Arrested Development. Um, I'm watching it, enjoying it. So I thought I'd do something different. I'd go out there, just like you talking about your book, talking about cold showers. Um, so that's Jeff's judgment for today. Jeff's judgment. My mouth needs to warm up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before we get into the AFI, I just want to do a quick sports update. I don't know. Have you been watching any any of the finals or anything? A little bit. Um, I am guilty of that. I don't really care about okay. any of the teams. So Well, the, the game on Thursday between the Warriors and Cleveland in the basketball was probably one of the most uh, incredible games I've ever seen um, broadcast. It uh, was just three-pointers back and forth. I know I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people that, that have sports opinions on how basketball has changed and everything. I'm just talking about a guy kind of like what Todd said. I don't watch throughout the season, but when the finals come around, I'll, I'll pop on and watch. Really don't have a dog in the hunt. Don't really have any feelings either way. But one of the first things I saw was Curry hit what must have been about a 45-foot three-pointer at the buzzer for halftime for three points to tie up the game. It was just amazing. Then towards the end, it got pretty physical, and there was a lot of passion out on the court and people getting ejected and stuff like that. So um, uh, Golden State took the first game. We'll see who uh, takes the second. The other one that is um, kind of catching my eye is the NHL final. Um, It looks like uh, the Capitals are up on Vegas two games to one. I'll be interested to see if if uh, Vegas, who who I'm kind of favoring, just because we have some kind listeners that are, are big uh, Vegas fans, uh, see how that series will work out. But um, yeah, I, I do find myself very interested in that because of Vegas doing the whole, you know, that they're a new team and getting so many so talented players from an expansion draft of sorts. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see how that pans out, how the sport reacts to it, because geez, I want to start up a team too if I can get all the all-stars <laughs> from everybody else. So I, I, I find that incredibly compelling. I also do find the NBA compelling. And my my complete disregard for the game came from that I watched the first time. I was like, oh, come on. Because I, I really wanted LeBron to win. I, I'm a little ah. tired of Golden State. When I got home from eating, we were out eating that night. When I got home, I think at that point, Golden State was up. And I was like, I don't want to watch that. And I should have. And I now regret that I didn't watch that game. It was, it, it was a pretty good game. And, 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 and not being, like I said, not really caring. It, part of my sports enjoyment um, is when I am in a public environment watching other people that are fans and have, you know, something vested in that game react. Because, you know, as we get older, um, of course, I have my passions and everything too, but um, and just, just kind of watching – uh, people react to certain plays, and you got the people that absolutely can't stand LeBron. You got the people that absolutely love LeBron, um, and just kind of watching them air all of their sports opinions uh, uh, with the p- people that are a few feet away that don't even know each other. So uh, it'll be interesting, and I'll keep an eye on it. Uh, I think we've got another game. Oh, and I was going to say, um, if you want to see something really interesting, kind listener and Todd, uh, check out the opening 
of a Las Vegas home uh, opening game uh, for the Vegas Knights. Um, it's different. There's this whole medieval times kind of thing that happens with wizards and dragons and knights and stuff. Interesting. It's not something you would expect out of the NHL, and I was ready to hate it. I was ready to give my buddy uh, Matt, who's a huge, he lives in Vegas and is a huge fan, a hard time about it. But it's actually pretty cool, and it's Vegas. Where I mean, that's a show town. So what better way to introduce your sports team in a show town than have a little show yourself? So um, I am pulling for Vegas, and it'll be interesting how those uh, games turn out. So that's your sports update. <clears throat> now on with the main feature. Woo-hoo. So yeah, exactly. Maybe like, good God, thank God. Um, so we spent a little bit of time last time uh, talking about last show talking about how the AFI was, you know, created and, and what it was for. Um, what I learned uh, in your uh, breakdown last week is that basically um, the AFI just was established to kind of keep some of these films that have made such an impression alive also to give some guidance and they have some pretty specific, um, criteria as far as, you know, what it does at the box office, how many theaters it's in, if it wins awards and, you know, uh, really to me, uh, is the ultimate list, uh, to try and, uh, top if you will, as far as, uh, you know, the movie since the, uh, since they began, right? Uh, and again, all of this will be debatable, and, and Todd and I will talk about that through and through. Is is there anything about the AFI list before we dive into it that you want to make sure the kind listener is aware of? Well, you know, I, I'm actually glad you asked that because starting off as we were doing a little pre-pro for this, you asked some questions about, you know, things that have won, et cetera, things that stand out about this list. So I'm going to do a very quick hit, run through some statistics on this that Ooh. I think are going to be fun to know as we go ahead. So, and I'm not, I'm going to start with the number of directors that appear multiple times on this. I'm not going to name their films, but instead I'm going to tell you who they are and how many films they have on it. Okay. Of course the, I'm, it it goes almost without saying that I, I was not surprised that the most recognized director was Steven Spielberg with five films, Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder each have four. There are 10 directors with three films. Those directors are Frank Capra, Francis Ford Coppola, Stanley Kubrick, John Huston, William Wyler, John Ford, Charlie Chaplin, Martin Scorsese, David Lean, and George Stevens. Never heard of him. <laughs> Victor Fleming is the only director with two films in the top ten. Those films I will name are Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. Um, the directors with two films, Michael Curtiz and Elia Kazan. Woody Allen only has one film. Hmm. Let's go on to that. The majority of the hot, the 100 greatest films are classified as dramas. However, we have the following 12 comedies, nine war films, eight musicals, eight westerns, four science fiction, four horror, two animated, and four silent. The eras that stand out with the most. Um, I, actually, I'm going to do a breakdown real quick. The silent era has 22 nominated films, three on the list. I'm not, uh, we'll go ahead with the nominated. The 30s have 56 nominated films, 15 on the list. 40s have 61 films nominated, 12 on the list. The 50s have 61 nominated with 20 on the list. 60s have 58 nominated with 18. 70s have 54 with 18 on the list. 
80s have 58 nominated with six on the list. The 90s have 30 with eight films on the list. There are no films in this list from the 2000s, which does speak to that they will very quickly be coming around with another one very soon. Wow. Okay, so go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. 33 of the films were Academy Award Best Picture winners. So one third of the list were recognized by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Oscars. Yes. Okay. Um, 75 of these were Academy Award Best Picture nominees. Uh, Three of them that appear were made before the Academy began offering awards. And six of the top 10 have won Best Picture. So when we get to that portion, that portion ah. is very in line with what happened in that year, but they will be ranked again. These films are films. God, I cannot talk. These films were are recognized <laughs> for their significance to the art form, to culture, etc. So it's not just, wow, that's the best movie I've ever seen. They really want to create a list, and it is a talking point list of these films mean something and why do they mean something to the art of filmmaking. Okay, so one reason why your mouth isn't working is you just threw out probably about 8,000 or, you know, four terabytes worth of data right there. So <laughs> don't, don't give yourself a hard time. The, there was one thing I wanted to ask about. Good information, and, and I'm, you know, I think you, Todd's been researching this for a couple of years, so thank you for all your years of research to find all that data because that's, that's the way you found that data, right? Yeah, a couple of years worth of minutes on Google, but yes. Oh, oh, the the uh, the Google, yes. Okay, all right. Well, thank you, Google. Um, so I love the era breakdown. That's really interesting to me. So which, now looking at that data that, that you got there in front of you, which decade had the most nominations? Let's see. The most nominations is tied between the 40s and 50s, which I, hmm. I'm i honest right away and tell you I'm shocked that it's not just the 40s. The 40s and the 70s are considered to be both golden eras of filmmaking. Wow. And now of the 40s and the 70s, they're pretty much neck and neck. The 40s have 12 films that end up on this list. The 70s have 18 films that end up on this list. So it's back when, yeah, you see, we got a problem. We got to go find the zebra right? That yeah, was big. pretty much. <laughs> all you did was watch the film noir type films. Yes, Jeff, that's the era I'm talking about. Um, wow. Okay. So one thing that surprised me, um, and I didn't know that the 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 40s and 70s were considered the golden age of film. Was the 60s? I figured the 60s were the hey man, let's rock out, man. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe everybody was rocking out and smoking weed and didn't shoot anything. Um, but how far behind are the 60s compared to the 70s? The, uh, actually, the 60s have more nominated films by four. Oh, uh, okay. And- they each have 18 on the list. Oh, okay. So the, they, they were equally. Okay. I thought they were, they were way down, but then we definitely see, um, a huge line trending down as far as the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Without question. But I also think that you're looking at the people who made this list grew up watching those other films <laughs> to make hmm. the current films. And so did they grow up? Did they grow up watching films like, oh, I don't know. Let me just pull one out of the air. Um, now I can't think of the name of it. Uh, were they watching movies like, I don't know, Citizen Kane? They might have been. Jeff. They <laughs> might have been. But really, I mean, the, 
this list is meant again to say this is these are the great achievements in filmmaking that allowed us to have the medium we have today i got you i got you and that's an important thing to to recognize going into it um because of course the era that we grow up in and first get introduced to film is going to be our golden age right so being born in the 70s you know 2001 space odyssey was something that just absolutely blew my mind platoon rocks my soul um you know other films that that came along and my parents were were pretty liberal with with what i got to see at the age i got to see it right they just basically said look you know be mature and just because you see this movie you don't go around you know repeating everything you know you heard in it but um um you know there there's some on here and we're going to get into the list here pretty quickly but i mean there are some that again i i think one of the reasons why i don't have the connection with citizen kane and i didn't get a chance to watch it last week i should have but we also changed our 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 plan to kind of break it down by 25 um I was about to say you're going to have plenty of time to go, and yeah. and I, and I intend when we get closer to the top twenty five to go watch it at least as in Kane. It's been a couple of years since okay. I've sat down to watch it all the way through, so well, I'll do the same. We can watch it. We can watch it together. I love that. <laughs> hey, maybe we are trying to get uh, Todd up to the uh, the studios here in Omaha, so maybe maybe we can do that. Although we should be done with twenty five by then, but I would think so. All right. So, are you ready? Are we ready to uh, to to kick this off? Because because I'm pretty excited here. Let's do it. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't even have any fancy music, but here we go with the AFI's 100 Years Best Films 10th Anniversary. I don't have any copy in front of me, so I'm kind of making that up, but I'm really excited. So let's get it started. What we'll do is we'll kind of do what we did with the Oscars, uh, Todd. I'll uh, give the, the number that it's on the list, the name of it, and the year. And then if you if you have it readily available and or want to throw in a notable actor, actress, or I should say actor, um, and then director, uh, or anything else in it, um, then we can. We'll have a short discussion about uh, the placement and how we feel about that movie. Does that sound good? I think that sounds more than fair. All right. So here we go with number 100. It is, that, what's that? That would be William Wyler's 1959 Ben-Hur starring Charlton Heston. Oh, I thought I was going to give the title in here. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were expecting me to. We'll, we'll learn and move on from here. All right. So, yes, you're right. And so, who'd you say that was a who directed it? William Wyler. And I think I was stepping on you. So we'll say 100 Ben Hur, 1959. Uh, notable actors. I know it's the guy that's big with uh, prying something from his dead, cold, dead hand. That'd um, be Charlton Heston, also star of Soylent Green, Omega Man, and. A little bit of film close to me, Planet of the Apes. Right. Oh, there you go. Right. So somebody, somebody, yeah, okay. So what was this movie about? <laughs> I have you know, not seen it. So the funny thing is, is that it, it's not amongst my favorite films in the world. I saw it when I was a kid. I couldn't tell you much more than it's basically a, a, a prince who is seeking to re get revenge, ends up in a chariot race, which the chariot race is considered to be one of the great ah. action staging scenes of all time. And if you've ever seen Star Wars The Phantom Menace, you have seen the chariot race because it is almost a shot-for-shot ripoff of it. Ah. Uh, or, um, there, or homage. Homage. It is, it, it is an homage. I, I You know, I, I was being very unfair when I said that. But um, it, it has a mention of uh, we could see Christ in it. He His life inter, uh, interacts, intercedes with christ 
Um, I mean, really, this film in in its significance, and I think why it ends up on the 100 is for that cherry race, because it's not Uh, considered. William Wyler is a great director. I was a great director. He's passed. Um, The film is not considered to be a very good film. The acting is subpar, but that chariot race will go down in history as probably one of the greatest of the great action scenes ever shot on film. Okay, and, and the cool thing about this movie is if you if anybody's ever seen it, and you maybe have them over, and you're like, "Hey, do you want to watch?" You know, Ben Hur, uh, they're more likely to say, "Nah, Ben Hur, done that." Oh God, why didn't you put the rim shot in there? <laughs> there we go. All right, sorry, folks, that was awful. All right, let's so 100. You uh, chariot race got it. Have not seen it. Okay, we'll move on to 99. I have seen this movie. It is the 1995 Toy Story, which is uh, interesting that an anime is is uh, uh, in the top 100, especially when this came out in the late 90s, right? Yeah, that's uh, 95. No, we, obviously it's right there, 95. <laughs> Good God, Jeff, wake up. All right, so directed by blah, 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 anything notable? You know, I, I, I really think that one of the reasons it ends up on in this list besides being a great film is that it's computer animation was so groundbreaking that I, I can't help but think that that was why these people are saying, you know, it, it's a uh, monumental achievement because I actually think toy story two is a better film. Right. Um, but I think that they're looking at this and saying this was so groundbreaking for computer animation and to put this kind of story with it. It it be, it does belong on this list, and but I think that's why it's here. And 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 they did they uh, it was I believe Pixar's first film, so yes, there's another reason. And they did bring some heavy guns in. They got uh, uh, Tom Hanks, um, and then at the time he was real big with his um, what is it uh, Home Improvement Show, right? What was his name? Uh, Tim Allen. Tim Allen, and then they got uh, what's his face from Cheers to do the voice of the dog. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, so I mean, there were all, I, I, and here's the interesting point for me, and I agree with you. It does belong in the top 100. They had to sell an animated film, right? They had the groundbreaking um, uh, Pixar technology and everything, but I think the reason why they went big on some of the voice talent is it needed to be some voices that people were familiar with, um, which would, I believe, uh, in my opinion, it, it created kind of a uh, a softer environment, if you will, right? So if it was yeah. voices that were either synthesized or not very familiar, I think it would have had a different um, uh, impression on the audience. Without question, I, th- I think the you know the casting of this film and and that 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 happens so often in great films is the casting is very important. Yeah, and and to bring Tom Hanks and Tim Allen into this, absolute masterstroke. Right. Well, well done, well done all around there. Okay, on to number ninety eight. We're gonna have to go back to the year nineteen forty two. Yankee Doodle Dandy. I have not seen this. I do not know anything about it. So that's James Cagney, and James Cagney, you know, feeds into your, yeah, let's get him, the thing you love, because he was one of the great gangsters from all of those Tommy Gunn gangster films, but the man was incredibly well-versed in song and dance. Mm. Is this a musical? uh, This is a musical uh, directed by Michael Curtiz, who is amongst the the, the decorated people on this list, having also directed... um, and not this film that's not on this list, but I'm gonna, the Adventures of Robin Hood, White Christmas, but one that is on this list. This is the man that directed Casablanca. Ah, so he has chops. 
Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy is basically um, the life of musical composer, playwright, actor, dancer, George M. Cohan. And uh, Mr. Cagney plays that. And it's very famous if you've ever seen James Cagney dancing in a black and white film where he almost looks like he's kind of stumbling forward with very staccato steps. It, all you have to do is go put this in on YouTube and say Yankee Doodle Dandy. And ah. that's the clip that comes up and you will go, oh, I've seen that. Cool. So it is amongst those that is, you know, so iconic. I, I can't say why the significance they put it here, but it, it is an incredibly iconic musical. So it's our first black and white film. It's our first musical film. Right. And yeah, that sounds like they, something they'd say back in the 19th. Yeah, you're such a Yankee doodle dandy. I guess that was, but, but, but you said the story was around uh, about somebody that wrote and performed. Yes. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Um, number 97. Yes. Okay. Have seen 1982. It came out. So it came out 40 years after Yankee doodle dandy blade runner, blade runner, Ridley Scott, Harrison Ford starring. I, I can't think of a film from, I'm going to say within the last 30 to 40 years that other than maybe star Wars has been more influential in its look. When yeah. you watch blade runner, you suddenly see, um, the, the noirish future look that you get in Batman that you get, um, even in seven by David Fincher with the constant rain is mm -hmm. very, I mean, there are just so many things that this film has just influenced. Christopher Nolan counts it uh, amongst his favorite films of all time. It, it's a film that's incredibly interesting because the director hated the original cuts where they actually put in a voiceover of a film noir type voiceover and has offered, I believe five subsequent director's cuts to try and get it right so the man's yeah. still working to get it right i i personally still love the film noir voiceover version i've never seen that one i would love to because i'm i'm a i'm a fan of that um but you know a couple things i, I would like to try and know about this as well because I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of kind listeners have listened to it so we won't won't beat it up too bad but um so this is after star wars came out star wars came out what 79 78 77 77 right i was close so this is fairly after that. So now uh, Harrison Ford is is gained some fame. He's probably been in one of the biggest science fiction films ever to to be released. Okay, I'll say that on shaky ground. Um, now he's playing another future role, and you know how difficult is it to to not be for audience not to say, oh, there's Han Solo, but he's you know playing a cop in another city. Um, that's one of the things. And again, I was pretty young when this was coming out. I think uh, Blade Runner came out when I was 10. Um, so the, the initial thoughts for me on it was I was very impressed with, um, the special effects kind of being done in a different way, right? Cause it, it didn't have the lasers of star Wars, but I never at any time felt like, um, I was watching Han Solo on screen and to this day when I rewatch it, I kudos to the writers and directors and, and everybody for, for putting it very easily could have put him in a similar role. Cause he, you know, his weapon in that, in that film is a pistol, mm -hmm. um, and not have it be, you know, just Han Solo, but you know, as a detective. Um, so an interesting thing about it is that, um, Dustin Hoffman was originally the man that they were going to put in the role of Deckard. Oh, to the Lord. point that if you look at production drawings, it looks like Dustin Hoffman in there. This is before or after Tootsie. 
I don't know when did Tootsie come out. <laughs> Tootsie came out. <laughs> Tootsie came. I'm sure. I don't know. Did Tootsie come out in the 70s? Will you? Will you uh, ask? No, uh, that would have been. That was. Uh, I just looked it up. 82. Okay, Google. Oh, uh, actually, IMDb helped me with that one. But so Dustin Hoffman is the original person they want to portray this. This is based on a, a novel by Philip K. Dick called "Do, Do... Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Yes, and. They bring in Harrison Ford because by the time this had occurred, he had been in both Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and had just finished shooting Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, wow. So okay. he was way on the upward side of this. So they expected this to be a monumental hit, mm. and it was anything but. Oh, did it fail pretty bad? It, it failed. I'm not going to say to the point of floppedum, but it failed. Yeah. And huh. they were all taken aback by it. But now, of course, it's revered as an absolute classic. Well, it is It is what uh, I would consider a paste film. It is not your tricks, bubblegum, uh, microwave, popcorn kind of movie. It is a, right. it is a uh, um, more like, uh, you know, uh, I was trying to think of a stew that takes a long time to make. But, yes, that's the, that's the kind of thing it is where yeah. things have to simmer and marinate a while before they... Uh, uh, and there, are, there are times when, when art is created that speaks of the time you're in, but it speaks so well that it needs to be removed 10 years before you start to realize that it actually spoke well. Right. It'd be and I think that's what happened with this. Beef bourguignon is what I was thinking on. It's a beef bourguignon. Now you're a lot, making me hungry. A lot of different flavors. Okay. And so far, before we go to 96, I want to say I am agreeing. I'm not seeing anything here that I have an issue with. Um, okay. I, I'm, you know, even though I haven't seen Yankee Doodle Danny, but, um, I'm agreeing with everything. Uh, we'll now, um, jump, uh, forward seven years, uh, for the number 96 film, do the right thing. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to show my, my, my movie knowledge. I believe it was directed by Spike Lee. That's correct. And that's all I know. <laughs> um, and I'm going to have to look this up. I want to say, uh, that was either his second Actually, I'm 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 trying to hit sure, uh, sure. IMDb because I want to offer this. This was among his early films, and you know when I look back on his career, the first film that I saw by him was let's see, was Do the Right Thing. Now he had already he'd already made She's Got to Have It and done a few of the short things, but they mm -hmm. were now most of it was short. So this was his second significant film. Um. I'm sorry. He also had School Days, third significant film. Oh, I re I recall seeing this in the theaters, and it's one of those films. I, I often tell my daughter when I talk about great films. I was just talking to her the other day about Schindler's List because in school they're going to study the uh, Holocaust next year, mm. and I said, you know, you have to watch this because there are certain films that if you see and if 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 they touch you right, you can't let them go for days. And Schindler's mm. List is on that list, as is Do the Right Thing, because to me. You know, this hit at a time in 89, I would have been, what, 23 at that time, that my social consciousness was awake enough that it, it jarred me. This portrayal of a hot summer day and, and tempers swelling between blacks and whites and different people within a culture in Brooklyn and what it escalates to, and it didn't come with an easy ending. And I, I believe all of that and especially that it doesn't have an answer at the end. When you're when you're done with it, it doesn't wrap it up neatly. And it will haunt you and stay with you. And hmm. the people that just go in and say Spike Lee pisses me off because of his racial overtones, you know what? He's an artist and that's the way he sees the world and he's sharing it with you. I it 
Well, it has one of the best endings of any film just because of that. I'm not going to answer this for you. It's on you now. Okay. So, but he also grew up in that environment. So he was creating yeah. art out of what he had seen and experienced growing up. Without question. Right. So, uh, yeah, I get it when people are like, well, Spike Lee, you know, it's always heavy and everything. But, I mean, if that's what, if that's what it is and what you know, then that's that's what you do. I mean, and he does it well. I can't, I have seen this movie. Uh-huh. It has probably been a very long time, and I need to I need to rewatch that. So, uh, well, and I will I will challenge anyone to go who's not seen this film, or if you have, go watch it again, but even turn the sound off and just watch his visual style and see how much his visual style influenced everybody else for probably the next ten to fifteen years. You will see things you're like, oh my god, he was doing that, and I promise he was doing a lot of this before other people were picking it up. Interesting. He's a great visualist. Anything else we want to add there? No, no, I think we can move on. All right, you are listening to The Other Kind Radio. I'm Jeff. He's Todd. We're talking about the AFI Top 100 Movies. We're doing the uh, 10th anniversary edition. And on this, on today's podcast, we're going to cover 100 through 76. We're going to do them 25 at a time uh, so that uh, um, things don't take too long. And um, we'll stop down and talk about a film if uh, something strikes us. Uh, I invite you, the kind listener, to email us at info at theotherkindradio.com, jeff at theotherkindradio.com, or todd at theotherkindradio.com. With any feedback, we'd love to hear back from you as far as what you, maybe some impressions or the first time you saw one of these films and how it struck you. Because, again, that is, that's the great thing about film is, is um, it, it, it can even affect you differently depending upon the type of day you've had uh, or where you're at in your life. So we're going through this. We've gone through five. We have 20 more. So we'll move on to number 94. Uh, Oh, excuse me. We'll move on to 95. Um, 1971. I have seen this film. It's been a while. The last picture show. And I'm again going to say Steven Spielberg, right? Close. Oh, no. Lucas. Uh, No. God. (laughs) Lucas couldn't have this much heart in a film if he tried. Um, It is directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, I was way, way off. (laughs) And and I'm going to step right in at number 95 and say if I'm constructing a list, mm-hmm. this is much higher on my list. This film, it's probably amongst my favorites. I've, I've mentioned before I don't do favorites well. I love, love, love this film. Now, Go ahead. is this movie the one? It is Sybil Shepherd. It's basically a night... Um, with a bunch of people going to a party, it's kind of like it was kind of like 1971's version of 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 uh, I'm trying to think like uh, uh, what's the one American Pie or Animal House or something like that. Isn't the whole thing focused around a party and teenagers and sex and stuff? There's a there is an element of that. You, you, it's 1950s. The town is basically dying. The movie theater is closing down. Um, and it really, it's a coming of age for young people. And it's based on a book by Larry McMurtry, Larry McMurtry and it, it stars Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepherd, and, oh my God, why am I forgetting his name now? Um, crap. Oh, I can, I can help you out here. I've got it open. Um, uh, Timothy Bottoms. Oh, yes. Timothy Bottoms. Yep. Now this film stands out because, uh, two of the adults in it. Ben Johnson, who is great from the Western era, and Cloris Leachman, which many of us know in, in, in numerous comedies, both won Academy Awards for their performances in it. Um, it, it features 
cinematography that is stunning black and white cinematography by robert surtees who was one of the great cinematographers man also shot uh, the graduate and ben-hur which we've already talked about so one of the great visualists that worked with someone um peter bogdanovich was a great friend of orson welles and you can awful often see the aesthetic that orson welles brought to things in peter bogdanovich who also did another great film called a uh, paper moon the last picture show resonates with me having grown up in small town America. I didn't grow up in the fifties, obviously, but it was a, it's that great thing that it can transcend its era and still speak to it. it. It features so beautifully these children that have graduated high school and are looking for a place to move on and how to make their way in the world and somehow feel it's not just the suck of the small town dying, but it's everything around them feels like it's dying. And it, it, the film haunts me. I can watch it a thousand times. And it moves me every time. So again, for me, it, it deserves a much higher place on the list. But it wasn't on the first list, so I'm glad it's here this time. You did such a better job than I. And, and it's funny because, I, I, like I said, I have seen it. It's been years. But all I remember is Sybil Shepard jumping into a pool with her clothes on. Um, um, actually, she she famously appears topless in that film. She takes off her clothes. So. I, Gosh, you're I saw the wrong version. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last picture show. Good, good insight. Good, good uh, report there. And, and I don't have an opinion if it should be higher. Um, but uh, you seem to make a really good argument on that. On to number 94, uh, coming coming to us in the year 1994, uh, Pulp Fiction. And that's a Tarantino mix right there. Um, I'll let you lead this one off. What you got? So. Without question, this film belongs on the list. Um, I don't have the stats if it was on the first one. I assume it was, but you know, there were there were so many Tarantino light type directors to come along after this film that that alone tells you it belongs on this list. It changed the way people wanted to consume film. Uh, he takes a very nonlinear approach to storytelling, which is not unique. And I will even tie it to number one on this list, Citizen Kane, and say that. He takes a very Citizen Kane type approach, which is the narrative doesn't just follow where you believe you have to with the main character. Instead, it takes the opinions and thoughts of other people and sort of goes around the center until it brings you back to what he wants to say. So if for no other reason than a nonlinear story about two hitmen and, and those two hitmen one of them has a very strict moral code, which alone that, that just feels so fresh and new. I think those, it, it was just so many different takes on it, as well as his ability, like Scorsese, to use great music in his films, that it influenced so many people for so long. Um, it, it belongs on this list. And, and I, I might argue, depending on what we see, it might deserve to be a little bit higher. Um, so Pulp Fiction for me, uh, so in 94, I was, I was, uh, fresh out of high school and, and going to school and working and all that other stuff. It, it, it hit me at a time where it definitely was a different film to see. It is one that I have watched repeatedly and it probably has some scenes in it, um, that had that have turned into definite pulp culture references, the, the Royale with cheese, um, the speech that's given about, uh, uh, about the, about the wallet in the diner when he's talking to him, um, there's, uh, and, and, and kind of, a, a, a another, uh, 
uh, opening for John Travolta, who I guess hadn't been very active or hadn't been anything super good for a while. Um, but I have a question for you regarding this film. Mm-hmm. If I'm correct, Tarantino is known as a director who has basically, and, and let me know if I'm saying this correctly or not, is known in the industry for borrowing a lot from a lot of other directors. Um, he's very, he's very derivative in a lot of what he does. And that, that is correct. You can, if, especially if you know, Asian action films, he takes a lot of beats from, from right. that. And, and you want to talk about a man that has a film knowledge, right? Ooh, he's terrifying because not only does he do kind of what I love to do, which is know these big films, the man knows his minutia and, but he is very derivative in that way. But what's, you know, I think that anybody I think any artist is derivative of what they've listened to. And, and they often say that the, the, the way creative people will first do something is they'll, they'll fall in love with it and they'll go try to repeat it. So I, I, I was just, the reason why I was bringing that up is, do you think that there are other people that believe this film is not in the right ranking place because it's, it's borrowed so much? Or is this film ranked where it is because he not only was able to borrow from all those different genres and, and impressions that those different films he saw and therefore did it in such a creative way that it earned him to this spot. I, I, I agree with the latter. I think okay. that without question, that's where it is. I, however, think if this film were made today and let's say it still was as fresh sure, because of the cultural appropriation where he takes on elements of a culture that he did not grow up in. That is such a sensitive topic. This film would mm. not work today because people would start saying, well, you're, you're not African-American. You can't be doing this. You can't, you know, that that's right. so big right now. in this artistic idea that you can't do anything if you've not been that, right. That this film would, would suffer on this list for it. So I think it definitely belongs here. I question again, where it belongs on the list because it was so powerful and what it influenced going forward. Right. Okay. Um, now we'll move on to the 93rd spot. We're going back to 1971, and we're talking about The French Connection, which I have seen. I'm sure you'll have the stats and actors and everything, but all I remember about The French Connection was car chases. That's all I remember. Is Steve McQueen in it? No, that would be uh, Gene Hackman. Oh, yes, but he but the, 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 there was a the younger guy that was in it. Who was that? Uh, there's Roy Scheider is in it, too. I'm trying to look and see if there's anybody else. I really don't see anyone else that... Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's it. I, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, so, showing how uh, illiterate I am, <laughs> but, uh, so this is directed by the great William Friedkin, who was a great director of that era. Um, and you're right to remember car chases cause it, it features one of the most famous car chases ever in cinema. Um, that does a lot of POV type shots. In other words, when you're in Popeye Doyle, who is the main character, when you're in his car, you aren't just seeing his face, you're seeing his point of view as he drives through the streets. That's right. It wasn't new, unique, then it wasn't the first time, but how much he used it and how it was actually in those city streets. Chicago. Yeah, it was Chicago. And it yeah. terrified people as he's chasing under the L yes. train. And it, it, that, you know, I, I was watching something once about the great car chases, and it said that they believe this may be the most influential car chase that's ever existed. So if for no other reason, it's a great film, yes. but it belongs on the list if for that reason and that reason only. So just like Ben-Hur with the with the chariot, this is kind of following the same same place. It has been years since I've seen it. I think when, when I'd go visit my grandparents in Texas, 
my aunt had HBO and it was on a lot. So right. um, I think that's it. And I enjoyed it. It seemed to be a pretty good film. It's a good movie. And, and if I'm reading this correctly of our list, this is the first of the best picture winners. Oh, yes. Keep us, keep us up to date. So that did win an Oscar. Okay. And it, it did win an Oscar for best picture. So interestingly okay. enough, you know, we had just talked about the last picture show that came out the same year. So obviously they were competing for an Oscar and this one won out. This is why we get into why the 70s are considered to be a golden era. I want, I want you to think of this. We already have two films. Mm-hmm. French Connection, Last Picture Show. This is also the era of the Godfather films. Ooh. This is also the era of Francis Ford Coppola also doing another film that's not on this list called The Conversation. The That era, it was just like all these new people that had just started going to this new concept called film school coming out. And so you have these films and you have Star Wars, you have Jaws. It's a fantastic era for filmmaking. Well said. Let's move on to 92. 92 came out in 1990. A little film that most of us have heard of, hopefully. Goodfellas. That's Martin Scorsese's... Uh, I'm trying to think of how to really describe it. It's it's the retelling of... Uh, what is his name? The, the, the actual guy, Henry Hill. The actual gangster, Henry Hill, and his recounting of being a member of the mob. I don't know if you've ever gotten a more realistic portrayal of being in the mob, a more brutal, but what I think that Scorsese does as good as anybody, and I'm including Tarantino because I think he's great at this, show me violence, but somehow make me laugh at it. The, the, the scenes where they've got a guy in the trunk and whatnot are horrific, but at the same time, you're finding the humor. It's an uncomfortable humor. And, and of course, Scorsese, again, relating to Tarantino, and I almost hate doing this, those men use actual rock and roll music in their soundtracks perhaps better than just about anybody out there. I agree. Um, it, it's, it's one of those films that, without question, belongs here because it's, it's often imitated. It, nothing is ever as good as, but it's often imitated. Right, right. And, and I'm still pretty, pretty in agreement, in alignment with this, uh, this placement. Um, Goodfellas, you know, I think the success of Goodfellas definitely helped with um, uh, little known shows, The Sopranos, um, yeah. uh, which I'm sure was was you know at least pitching it and having it green lighted was was helped by this. It also is another very very pop culture heavy referenced uh, film, um, and really it's one of those great stories uh, movies that that uh, tells a complete story that takes you on a journey all the way from from boyhood to manhood, the rise and the fall. So you get to see the characters change um, as they get older. And, and um, you walk away from, from that movie definitely having felt like uh, you've been given, a, a like, like I said, a good story and, and an accurate, um, or at least something that was believable as far as what could have taken place. Very well said. Um, on to 91, have not seen this film, have used it as a punchline a couple times and then realized it has to deal with the, uh, uh, subject matter of abortion. So I've backed off that, uh, 1982 Sophie's choice. I believe this is Barbara. Well, it's not Barbara. It's oh. actually Mer- Meryl Streep. Oh, what am I? Oh, I was thinking Yentl. Never mind. Yeah. Oh. I, I was thinking, um, no, it actually has to do with a choice that's even more horrific in some ways than simply abortion. Here's an uh, idea, Jeff. Stop guessing. <laughs> actually, I kind of like your guessing. It's a lot of fun. So this is directed by Alan J. Pakula. 
um, starring Meryl Streep as a the survivor of a Nazi concentration camp. And all I'm going to say is this. I, this is one that I don't really have an opinion of whether it belongs on the list. However, I, I'm, I battle with my father about Meryl Streep all the time because she is a fine actress. I get sick of that if the woman farts on screen, we nominate her for an Academy Award. Mm. But there is no questioning her portrayal in this. And I'll only say this. If you've not seen this film, I'm not going to say what the choice is. I don't know that there's ever been a more harrowing thing to watch than when that, that information is revealed. It is horrific. It's it, it, it will shatter you. And now that I think of it, I was telling my daughter she has to watch um, Schindler's List when she studies the Holocaust. I do believe we'll be watching this too because the thoughts of what people had to endure is completely encapsulated in this film. It's, it's a great film. I, again, I don't have enough information to say whether it belongs on here or not. That is so well said, and thank you for putting it with my ignorance. And just for the kind listeners out there, I want to clarify something. As you've already witnessed on this podcast, I have a tendency to uh, uh, talk about stuff that uh, I may not be educated on. And and so, yes, it deals with some very, 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 very uh, serious, um, mature subject matters. And when I was saying I use it as a punchline, often when in hanging out with friends, they would say, "Hey, have you seen that movie? You know, the one with the the where the 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 they're the guardians of the galaxy, and they fly around and and do this stuff, and then you know, or they couldn't think of the name of the movie, and I would throw out Sophie's Choice again. Once I realized what uh, that movie matter had to deal with, I have since uh, changed that nonsensical uh, guess to trying to figure out a movie title to Yentl." Um, so, so. If, if Yentl ends up on this list, I will stop. I'm just <laughs> All right. Sophie's choice 91. Um, now we're going on to the 90th place, uh, 1936 have not seen this swing time. So that is Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical directed by George Stevens, who will appear on this list again as the director. Um, the only thing I'm going to say about this, Fred Astaire's Ginger Roger, incredible chemistry on screen. I I love musicals. I do not love musicals like this. I was forced to watch them as a kid, and I would sit there, it's just horrible. However, this this holds the distinction of being amongst the first musicals that ever began to say, our songs aren't just about singing about the moment. They can be about character, and they can advance the story and the character. Now, uh, Oklahoma is is widely known as the one that really broke that open later, that they began to let the characters sing about themselves and what they were thinking and feeling, and it could illuminate things like that. But this this holds that distinction um, for advancing the 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 plot itself. So uh, that's really all I have on this film. Said very well, and this is my first film on the list where I haven't assumed that I've known something and or made a joke that was either uh, not funny or inappropriate. So we'll <laughs> we'll leave it at that. 1936, number 90 on the list, 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 swing time. Um, now we're going to move into 89. So we finished out the top 10 uh, and we're moving in a little further. Or excuse me, not the top 10, but the, uh, the, the bottom half of the 100 and even the bottom half, the bottom 10 of the 100. Good Lord. Um, math is fundamental. We're moving on to 89 came out in 1999. I have seen this, the sixth sense. So M night Shyamalan, and I'm going to be very honest. I just don't see that this belongs on this list. 
it's really? a good movie. It's a fun movie. I don't see how it advanced filmmaking because this film, in my opinion, was so well made that it actually ruined this man's career by and large because now everyone goes. Yes. It, it's famous for its twist at the end. Now yes. you go to his films and you look for his twist. Right. And I, it's a good film. If you go back and watch it, it's not a perfectly constructed film because it really, once you know the twist of it, it doesn't hold up because you can begin to see how it's been telling you that all along. I, I just, I really question that's even on this list. So I've got a couple things to say about this movie. Um, one, I agree with you um, in the sense that I am surprised it's this high up in the list. Uh, I also agree that it kind of ruined M. Night Shyamalan's um, ability to make film because it was such a success. It's a unique film in the sense that the twist at the end really, really was um, what carried the entire um, film. Yeah. Uh, of course, you always had the people say, oh, I knew all along that blah, 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 blah. Um, however, being one of those, I was, I was like, you know, it's a good film. Go watch it. It's like, I knew what it was all along. It's like, all right, well screw you which is what i love what i love about it is when i go in and watch a film like that i i fall hook line and sinker because for me i'm i'm not analyzing the film as i'm watching it i i save that for for horrible films um like battlefield earth you know films that are so bad or so predictable then i'll find myself adjusting my my mindset from viewing the film to picking it apart I, I agree with that, Jeff. And I, when I watched this, I did not pick it apart. And, and a yeah. film that will pull me in will make me not do that. That's a really good way of putting this. When a film is failing, that's when I sit there and think, why are they doing this? Because this is where it's going. Right. I didn't do that with this film. I, I fell for it, and then I enjoyed the twist. But again, it just it doesn't belong here. Right, right. And, and, and the, the other reason why, and I'm, I'm, I'm working up to something here, I promise. The other thing I did think they did very well in this film was the, was the casting. Bruce Willis, who had already been known for Die Hard and all this other stuff, was kind of the edgy guy. He was in a different role. And then, of course, the casting of the kid was, was just wonderful. Um, also, and, and, the, and the mother. And uh, the mother, yes. Tony Collette is outstanding in this film. The way it was shot, they had to be very careful because they had to set up everything in the film to match what happened sure. at the end. So here's my theory as to why, and, and I'm with you, I don't necessarily agree, but my, my theory as to why it's at 89 is if we review the films we've seen so far, we have our first musicals, we actually have two musicals now, we've got a couple Oscar winners but at least in these, and again, I haven't seen every film, so correct me if this is wrong, this is the one that really has that twist, that cliffhanger that that changes the whole perspective. Because even the sound and the in the way everything's shot, when you find out what what he what happens, makes you literally go, "Oh my god!" or gasp or whatever you do when you have that emotion. So, I agree with you, but I'm thinking the reason why it's here is the storytelling, the setup, and then the the turn and the payoff from the twist. I think that, I, I think without question you're right. The 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 pop culture significance of that twist because it became pe something people talked about. Yes. The problem is, is that to me you need to have a number of these elements: great filmmaking, pop culture, blah 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 blah. I agree. And this really only has one. I I agree with you. The casting's great. I Bruce Willis in the right roles, fantastic. Yeah. You know, he went on to star in, in Night Shyamalan's um, Unbreakable. Yes, and I thought he was great in that too. Yeah, I, I really 
that has a twist in it, but I actually I fell for that movie too. Yeah, and, and I, the, the success I was the layers of this. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I talked over you. I, that's okay. I said I just don't see the layers of yeah. why this is here. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could argue that back and forth uh, all day, but it, it it is there. It's number eighty nine. Um, love to hear your feedback, uh, kind listener, on that as well. So, moving right along, we'll go to number eighty eight. We're going way back to nineteen thirty eight. See, so we got nineteen ninety nine and eighty nine, and then we got nineteen thirty eight and eighty eight. It's bringing up baby, uh, another film that I will close my mouth and let you educate about because I know nothing about it. So this is one that, again, was one of those that my family would watch, and I was like rolling my eyes as a kid. Uh, directed by Howard Hawks, 1938. It's basically, and I'm going to read even what IMDb says, while trying to secure a $1 million donation for his mu- museum, a befuddled paleontologist excuse me, is pursued by a flighty and often irritating heiress and her pet leopard, Baby. So it stars Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, which... It is one of those great screwball comedies, and there is something about those two together had fantastic chemistry. Howard Hawks, a great director that understood not just how to stage something like this well, but how to get that that pacing that is needed for this type of film. It belongs here because it is such a a point of what was happening with film in 1938. So it belongs here. Okay, and is it our first live-action comedy? I know Toy Story is considered a comedy. Was Yankee Doodle Dandy a comedy? No, it was a musical. I think you're right. This is the first. Okay, so that might be some significance there, too, as far as uh, hitting the top 100. Oh, my Lord, we're at an hour and 21 in. Okay, we'll kick it in for these these other ones. We may... (laughs) We may have to rethink our strategy here. Well, do we do we only want to go to eighty? Let's go 81. to eighty. Let's do eighty. We'll do the first twenty. There you go. Executive decision by the producer Todd. There, I like it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because because the sad the the funny thing or I shouldn't say sad thing, but the funny thing is, kind listener, and thank you for hanging out with us for an hour and twenty two minutes so far. Todd and I could literally stay here even if we weren't recording. Um, if we didn't have anything else to do for the rest of the day, and we would talk through all 100 straight. This is yes, just we would. <laughs> this is just what we do. Uh, so good idea, good idea. All right, back to the show. Number 87, have seen this, came out in 1957. Are you kidding me? So we got 89 made in 1999. We had number 88 come in in 1938. Now we have 87 coming in in 1957. Folks, this is getting a little weird here. Uh, just hang on because look at the next two that <laughs> we'll get there when we get there. See, so, now, now we know how they picked it. But the film name is Twelve Angry Men. Take it away, Todd. Directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, one of the another great, great director, uh, directing two of my favorites from the seventies, Dog Day Afternoon and Network. But in this one, we have Henry Ford, and uh, I, I, just to, I'm going to say a cast of tons of character actors that you've seen tons of times uh being a jury as as imdb imdb god almighty imdb puts it (laughs) a jury holdout attempts to prevent a miscarriage of justice by forcing his colleagues to reconsider the evidence when you talk about the great courtroom dramas of all time you you usually begin with 12 angry men this is is just 100 percent belongs on this list and and arguably may deserve to be a little bit higher in here but it is one of those greats if you've not seen it spend time watching it. it it really is it's what i what i refer to in my uh my own nomenclature of a film uh describability 
Ooh, look at all that wordage. Um, it is a t- what I would call a talking movie. Uh, I know that sounds weird. People think, well, yeah, most movies have talking in it. But this is all about uh, talking is my less fancy word of dialogue. It is a talking movie. This movie, this it's a movie that the set does not change much. You've got the courtroom and then you've got the, the deliberation room where they're there. You, so that's it. There's no spaceships. There's no going to the store. There's no driving in your car with a helicopter chasing you. Goodfellas reference. It's really simply shot. In fact, I would wouldn't be surprised to learn that maybe this was originally done on stage and then transposed to the big screen. I could be wrong about that. Um, I think there is a stage version of this, and and I may be showing my my non knowledge <laughs> the gun there, but you're you're absolutely right. It's it could be done but, very easily on stage. Yeah. But and things like this, you know, that are so heavy on the exposition of a character being all that we understand about the characters is no action other than their reaction to what is said. Well said. Sidney Lumet never lets this get boring. No. And that to to take a a drama that is nothing more than a stage play, really, and and not make it feel like a stage play. It, it shows you why this is so significant, why it's so revered. I, you're, people have tried to remake this, and it, to me, it's one of those don't even try. Yeah. Now, is the person that's on trial are they a, are they a minority? I honestly don't remember that, Jeff. I, I'm trying to think too because it may be, um, and maybe we can come back and touch on this later. But I think I think the person on trial is a minority. And that also is kind of the interesting aspect of the film because it is, I believe, a mostly white jury that is trying to, at first they're all convinced that this particular person is guilty, and then through uh, great uh, written dialogue and discussion, they, I believe, go the other direction. Um, we, we maybe can touch base on that some other time, but I but definitely agree, agree that it should be here. 87 from 1957, 12 Angry Men. Now that the Academy is... Uh, or I should say the AFI um, has given up on really d- doing any of their homework and are just matching years with placement. We go to <laughs> we, we go to number 86 coming out in 1986, and that is a movie uh, that I mentioned earlier, and that's Platoon. Uh, wh- what's, the, what's the tale of tape on that one, Todd? So Oliver Stone's account of much of what he actually experienced while being deployed in um, Vietnam it is the tale of uh, one soldier played by Charlie Sheen, a very young Charlie Sheen, yes. and what Oliver Stone describes as th- the struggle between two fathers because he has two superior officers, one more compassionate, one more hard-nosed, that are pulling him in equal ways. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do when you've already got the tension of the Vietnam War, which we know was how it was so horrifically harrowing for the people that went. But to add in that this young man is having his soul torn apart by the people around him, too. The the thing for me, it, this is one of those that, I, like I mentioned earlier, like a Schindler's List, that haunted me for days. Yeah. Uh, when I saw this, I was, I guess I'd have been 20. And, you know, we didn't have the draft at that time. But all I could think was, my God, if I'd been born just a few you know years earlier, I could have you know, been sent to a war like this. I could have gone through it. Now on a, a flip side, it uses Samuel Barber's uh, Adagio for Strings mm. throughout. And to this day is my favorite 
piece of classical music is yeah. a beautiful, simple string structured thing that actually because of, and I forget how this works, but the harmonics of the notes create almost an angelic chorus type sound like there are people singing but they're not and it, it i tell you when you see this film you'll and you hear that piece of music you'll know what i mean it's almost like the angels are there with him it's just so many elements are beautifully done of such a, a tough subject to tackle uh yes well said and and uh, good notes on that film um i was i think 14 or 15 when it came out and was equally amazed by it, the storytelling and understanding that, that there were um, soldiers um, that had to go through that. Uh, very, very well told, very well done, um, and definitely, definitely deserves. This one, this one I'll, I'll reserve for my first is I think it should be a little higher, um, but uh, a movie that's uh, obviously... Um, had it, you know, its success, I think, also had a little bit of the uh, Kubrick, I believe, has been Kubrick, I believe, was a big fan of this film, just like he was a fan of 2001 when he was uh, getting in, uh, not 2001, I'm sorry, of uh, Rosemary's Baby when he was starting to do The, the Shining. Um, but uh, does that even make sense? Yeah, because he did. What, what year did uh, Full Metal Jacket come out? It was after Platoon, right? It was after Platoon. Okay. And, and you know of, of Kubrick's films that's, to me that's not one of the great ones but you can definitely see that something like this made him want to tell that story right right uh so 86 platoon 1986 and staying in form we're going to go to 85 which came out in 1935 and that I believe is a marks part of the movie called a night at the opera and it is. It's you know we're we're not going to get into the directors of the Marks Brothers films because it's not usually what they're known for um the Marks Brothers really carried the height of their popularity during the Great Depression. That's why you, you look at so many of the early films and what they meant to the people is they were struggling to escape the Depression. Yeah, um, I, I often say that a film for me succeeds if it can make me forget that, oh, by the way, I forgot to pay my electric bill. Right. You know, when you start thinking that the, the real things that are pressing in life, have I done this and this and this, a film can take you to another world. And it can make you forget those woes. So you you look back at the the, the Marx Brothers, and I, if you've not seen a Marx Brothers film, go watch it. It Charlie Chaplin, all these kind of people like that are so funny, so charming, and you begin to see the evolution of the film language of comedy through things like A Night at the Opera. Great film, completely deserves to be here. I, I you know for this era of film, I don't know if it doesn't belong a little higher. Uh, to me, it, it is one of those when I hear great comedies, I hear people always say, oh, I grew up watching A Night at the Opera. Well said. I've I've seen this. My father raised me on their films. Um, the only thing I'd like to add on there is that out of, while it's not the first comedy that's on the, on the top 100, uh, this I would consider a true comedy. This is not um, you know, sometimes comedies like uh, Cheaper by the Dozen is considered a comedy. There's some, there are some, um, some creative and clever lines in it that can get a laugh. But this movie, to me, is written as a comedy where you've got one-liners and jokes just just being popped off. You know, every other every other fifteen twenty seconds. So uh, I agree with you. Should be up here, and uh, glad to see it on here. Uh, we'll move on to now we're out of the uh, whole weird thing that happened there with the year matching uh, the list number. We're going to go to number 84. 
Easy Rider came out in 1969. I can't tell you if I've seen this movie. I know my father is probably uh, not very happy about that. I know it has Jack Nicholson in it, but that's it. So talk to me about Easy Rider. So it is, in no ways is it the beginning of independent film in America, but it's often considered to be one of the first great independent films because directed by actor Dennis Hopper and written by Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, who also starred with Jack Nicholson. Uh, It's about bikers that head from LA to New Orleans, uh, pick up somebody along the way, and it becomes one of the great icons of that era speaking about freedom and individualism, patriotism, counterculture type things, and has some pretty hard-hitting stuff in it. Uh, You're not going to watch a feel-good movie if you watch this, but this film is so vastly influential to what would come then in the 70s that people saw that, oh, I don't have to necessarily have the backing of major studios to do these films. So it, it really was that first pinpoint that i can even think of that said we're going to do this on our own well said and and if there's any movie out that we've kind of gone over so far that uh piques my interest the most to go see is probably this one so i will uh uh if i get some time this will be my first one to watch i didn't and, and i know nothing about it and i like the idea of la to new orleans and and um the the idea that it was kind of an independent film so thank you for that um now we'll kind of move on to what I think is going to be our first kind of controversial placement, at least for me. came out in 1997. Uh, it's number 83 on the list, and it's Titanic. Todd, tell me what your take is. I'm trying not to groan. <laughs> me too. However, me too. However. You just went over. You just talked about Easy Rider. We talked about Platoon. We talked about Goodfellas, French Connection, Pulp Fiction, Last Picture Show. Movies with real meat on their bones. And then this Cracker Jack kind of shows up. I'm sorry. That was my that was my rant. Please continue. So in, in the however category, it is a film that works. You, If you take away that it is corny as hell, if you take away that James Cameron makes the same film every time, and I will say this, there's always an evil corporation. There's always a love story. There's always something that goes wrong. And in the end, we have to set the corporation right. So that fits into Titanic and the man makes the same film over and over. However, I want you to imagine the pitch. Even when you're James Cameron at this time, you don't quite have, you're, you're, you're James Cameron. You've had the Terminator. You've had some other things, but you aren't James Cameron. He pitches to them, I want to make the Titanic and I want to make a real ship. I want to minimize, if I can, the amount of computer animated stuff. I want to tell this on a grand scale. I'm, I'm going to make a grand epic. He does all that. He he does it, and he orchestrates it. You know, there was so much so much press when this came out of the turmoil that went along. None of the turmoil shows on screen. The film works as it's intended. I, I was trying to struggle to find a way to say that. It, it, it is meant to be a Gone with the Wind type romance. And when I say Gone with the Wind type romance, what yeah. I mean is that's told against the civil war with fictitious characters. This is told about a great travesty that occurred with fictitious characters where I think, and I think that a lot of people think too, where this film really goes wrong is you don't need those fictitious characters. If you go read the true stories of the people that were on the Titanic, he could have made a, a monumental film about that. But I, I, I think he's a little bit schlocky in that way. Um, I, I can't say it doesn't belong in this list. I don't like this movie. 
I don't like it at all. I can watch it because I'll like, oh, that's, you know, the wonderful construction. I think once the Titanic begins to sink, it's a very well-made action film. Yeah. It's just it, for it to win Best Picture and oh, vomit. Yeah. Um, I, 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 in the interest of time, yes, I, I echo a lot of your sentiments. And, and I was just thinking while you were talking about that, to say that it doesn't belong where it's at, you know, I do... I, I am aware and cognizant that there are crews and actors and actresses and, and, and DPs and people that need work and, and work on these films and, and put in a lot of hours to do it. And I just want to make sure they, because it's easy to just to armchair quarterback it and say, nope, shouldn't be on here. And, I, and, I'm, and through that realization as you were speaking, warms my heart a little more of where it's placed and why it's on here. Because you're right, it was a huge undertaking. And the AFI is not putting movies on here necessarily that have, uh, you know, they don't have a Velveeta cheese filter on it or anything. I think, like you said, when Cameron pitched it and it, you know, was a piece of history and it was fresh. And I, I think at the time also spoke well and was cast uh, well and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had had all the elements, like you said, as a James Cameron movie, you know, with love interests and some dancing and some silliness and then tragedy and then and all that other good stuff. So um, plus, I think the big hook was how they had uh, it started with them actually searching the uh, wreck of the Titanic and then working yeah. that into the um, the the time shift, if you will, back to when the boat was on, and and I've kind of forgotten about that because I'm you know I'm in the same same boat huh, as you are. Oh, here, let's do this. I'm in the same boat that you are in with this movie, but um, now that I think about it and put some 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 analytical you know energy into it, yeah, I can see why it's on there. So, eighty three Titanic, nineteen ninety seven. We're gonna go back to nineteen twenty seven to a movie that I know nothing about, which I'm sure Todd does. It's number eighty two out of the. Uh, we're gonna go to eighty, folks. So we're gonna actually go to eighty one. So we'll do the first twenty. Nineteen twenty seven's Sunrise. Tell me about it. So this is the first of the films on the list that I've not seen. I know of. Uh, it is F.W. Murnau's silent film that basically. Oh. It, it is considered to be one of the greats that created the language. And I, I, I'm even going so far, you know, it's one of those that I've always thought, well, I need to see that. I don't even know how to see it. So while I'm talking about it, I'm going to my favorite app. I can reset. Hey folks, you're listening to the kind radio. I'm Jeff. He's Todd. We're doing a very long podcast today. We thought we could just blow through like the top, 25 you know of the of the 100 and this is once again uh as todd constantly tells me i i'm always worried about filling time but we seem to be uh way over schedule on this so thanks for hanging with us but we're doing the the we're going to break down the top 100 films the 10th anniversary edition Uh, we are on number 82 sunrise which came out in 1927 todd's doing a little research was that long enough for you there yeah it was and and i I really can't it's one of those that I know about because I've seen enough and, and read enough in the books that I, I had in school that I know because of the, it, it's all about the inner tor- tor- turmoil of this man. Um, in fact, this is what IMDB says, an allegorical tale about a man fighting the good and evil within him. Both sides are made flesh. One sophisticated woman he is attracted to and the other his wife. Oh. Um, it's, 
it's just one of those that is considered to be if you're going to understand all this type thing then you need to watch i mean murnau also the director of nosferatu and some other things like that that if you ever get into the early expressionistic german type things that really you want to talk about that, tim burton i can almost guarantee you watched all of murnau's films it, it lo looks that way so I don't know much more beyond that. It's just one of those that I need to see. Right. All right, 82 Sunrise. All right, and the last one for this podcast, and I think, folks, what we're going to do uh, for the next show is we'll just do 10. Um, uh, that we just will uh, leave it a little bit uh, shorter for you. Uh, made in 1960, 81 on the list, Spartacus. It's the first time that we get to see one of the great directors of all time, who is, believe it or not, not one of my favorite directors. Do you know who directed this, Jeff? And all I know is I think this is the one where he goes, freedom, and then he gets his guts cut out and everything. Don't recall that line in it. Uh, the, the very famous line, and even gets used again. You know, the, he had blue ones. on his face, and he was like, today we fight for, you know, and. No. Oh, no. What movie no. was that? That's Mel Gibson's piece of garbage that won this picture. Oh. What was that thing called? I don't recall. I hated that movie. I think it was called... Um, um, no, what was it? it was Braveheart. Braveheart. Yes, Braveheart. No, this, this is directed by Stanley Kubrick. Oh! <laughs> um, the slave Spartacus leads a violent revolt against the decadent Roman Empire. Great movie. Very great movie. Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier, Gene Simmons. And I don't mean Gene Simmons from Kiss. I'm I'm talking the female Gene Simmons. Do you mean the Simmons is like, okay, everybody, let's get in line. And one and two and three and <laughs> not that, not that guy either. Oh, okay. Um, that, that'd be Richard Simmons. <laughs> okay, can you imagine a movie if we had Gene Simmons from Kiss? Gene Simmons, the great film actress, and Richard Simmons. Oh my god, I would watch that movie every day. Um, Dalton Trumbo wrote the script. I mean, you've got such a rich pedigree with this, but it is, it is not your typical Kubrick film, which Kubrick films really, he's one of those that understands that I'm going to show you instead of tell you, I'm going to let the moments play themselves. Spartacus is a little bit more of, uh, if it's in line with the Lawrence of Arabia type thing, the grand spectacles. Uh -huh. And I don't think Kubrick had the power at this time to do it on in the way he would want to. Um, and, you know, really this kind of filmmaking belongs more to a David Lean who did Lawrence of Arabia beautifully. Um, it's a good movie. Good movie. A lot of fun. It's just probably not what I consider amongst Kubrick's best. Kirk Douglas in it as yeah. well. Huh. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. If you see the movie, you'll understand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right folks that's that's going to do it for this to this podcast an edition of the other kind radio we have been in your ear for an hour and 42 minutes i know todd's always like why do you always bring that up i'm just i'm ever so conscious of of our audience and we thank you so much for hanging with us um we are going to continue um the next podcast what do you think todd we should just do 10 10 yeah. maybe 15 i think 10 is a great yeah. great approach and, and we can maybe get into things a little bit deeper even with that right because i mean we're going to start getting into uh some some titles like clockwork orange hey there's tootsie and uh, silence of the lambs in the heat of the night so yeah we, i think these films as we get a little up not that these other ones didn't get up there in the list uh spend a little more time on them so um i'll, I'll turn it over to you for any final words you've got 
I, I've got no final words except to say that the next 10 films are, I, I can pretty much say, all great films. So we're not going to ha- have any stop downs to bitch about James Cameron again. <laughs> okay, I like that. All right. Well, thank you, kind listener. This, is, this has been another episode. Um, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher. Like us. We're also on Twitter, TOK Radio. And uh, I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I know we're shutting it down, but I'm already looking ahead. And uh, we'll be excited for next week's episode. For Todd, myself, thank you to all the kind listeners from Omaha Studios. We are The Other Kind Radio. Thanks for listening. The Other Kind Radio. radio. The Other Kind Radio. The other kind of radio.